0: Thanks for tuning into the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Sharon Shooter, the Founder, CEO, and Creative Director of Oma Beauty.
1: Welcome, Sharon. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Sharon, I mean, you have kind of been at the center of a lot of change happening in the beauty industry right now. I know when we spoke last time, you mentioned that Pull Up for Change, the campaign that you launched at social media was an emotional reaction to the killing of George Floyd and the national protests. Will you talk a little bit about that and how it kind of just came to you?
1: Yes, I think for me, you know, Firstly, we've been talking about this for years, right? We've been talking about this for a long time. The lack of, that's why I even set up my brand to, to, in the first place, because it was frustrated with the lack of inclusivity, but it wasn't just, and I think I said this a lot two years ago when I, uh, or a year and a half ago when I launched my brand, when I was saying it wasn't just about the inclusivity and lack of products. For me, it was always, let's go to the root cause. That's how I, I always see things as cause and effect. You know, there's no point in us all screaming about the effect if we're not talking about the cause. The only way we can change the effect is talk about the cause. And I always spoke about these companies lack diversity. And that's why you're getting 12 Shades of Beige because- Literally, even the dark shades that are coming out, that's why they were orange, because they don't even have dark skin to test it on. Because firstly, modeling agencies don't have many dark skin on their rosters. you know. Secondly, they don't even have the people in the office to actually test it on. So they literally use Pantone and swatches and literally just copy whatever another brand who's done, you know, Fashion Fair have dark shades. Okay, let's just take Fashion Fair and just copy the shades and release it. So until Fashion Fair released 50 shades, they ain't got nothing to copy, you know? And that was when Fenty had 40, okay, now there was something to copy. So then everybody launched, you know, 40 shades of foundation. So so, so these issues have always been started from within the organizations. Now, fast forward to right now in 2020 with George Floyd's murder, the murder of um, Ahmad Aubrey, you know, um, everything that happened leading to the second wave, because I call this the second Black Lives Matter movement. But something changed this time. I think two things changed. One, we were in a pandemic, everybody was at home. So you could actually sit down and have time to consume information, right? The second thing that changed is everything was filmed. When Trevor Martin died, he wasn't filmed. So there was also, you know, some people could have the benefit of doubt that maybe it's not as the media are making it. Maybe there's suicides of the story when Amadou Diallo was shot 41 times for getting a wallet out of his pocket. That wasn't filmed. That wasn't filmed. So you couldn't see it. But this time everything was filmed. George Floyd was the final straw because we saw it. We saw the cop just casually with his hand in his pocket while snuffing the life out of a human being who peed himself and cried for his mother, right? So, for the first time, everybody saw the humanity because now there was no excuse. You could see they beat him up in the car, you could see four people on top of a person who's not fighting back. So for the first time, there was no argument, and then people also saw the law trying to like go, yeah, and it's like, why you know, did arrest those guys yesterday, you know? And so I think for the first time, the world sort of stopped because the world was already paused. COVID nineteen had paused the world, right? People weren't running in and out and just glimpsing the news anymore. People were consuming in its entirety, and I think for the first time, the world actually agreed and said, you know what? Okay, yes, maybe there is a problem, and so for me. That was all emotional. For us, this was real. We were out there trying to make change only to come back and then you see brands doing performative activism, you know? Oh, we donating a million dollars. Oh, we donating $100,000. Oh, we put in a black square up for Blackout Tuesday. And for me, it was like, this is such a unique opportunity in time. For the first time, everybody's willing to go, let's let's dismantle this system once and for all, right? But how can we dismantle the system when people who are playing a big role in it are there pushing passing the buck to somebody else? We don't have anything to blame. How can you not see that in this moment? How can you not see the role that you have played in this? How have you not seen the role you've played in marginalization? How can you be looking? I mean, look at some brands that are pulling up right now with zero black employees, zero. And you walked around your office for years and it felt normal to you. You know what I mean? And I'm like, okay, this is a good chance for brands to actually, self-reflection is key. And that's why we took this campaign public, right? Self-reflection is key you know you cannot say fix you cannot help an alcoholic until they realize they're an alcoholic right there's no there's no way for a lot of these brands this is just, uh, you know nike don't do it all of them it's performative right because they don't feel it i mean we saw the numbers nike's leadership team 72% white get to vp level and above is 77% white right how can those people feel it when you're dropping your don't do it campaign what do you know you're telling people not to do right don't do it meanwhile your organization is white And you're telling other people, don't stay silent. Meanwhile, where is Nike in all of this now that that we're asking for real action? Aren't they silent? Didn't they release a campaign telling people not to be silent? And so for me, I was done. I was just like, I'm done with this. Something has to change. And to be honest, the only people who can drive change right now are consumers. We can't drive change.
0: So Sharon, go back a little bit because, you know, I spoke to you a few days after this launched. And, you know, you were, some brands had not even pulled up yet. Ulta, I don't believe, had pulled up yet where you sell. Yes. Um, you have an exclusive partnership with them in the U S. Um, so were you expecting the firestorm that ensued? Because not only were brands responding and, you know, giving their numbers and statistics, but some brands were again being performative or muddling the message and not realizing the onus was on them.
1: Mm. Exactly. Look, I think for me, that's why I go like this was an emotional thing for me, right? At the time I set this up, I was not thinking about anything other than change. Other than something has to give. There was no what how is this going brand's gonna react? Are they gonna pull up or whatever? It was just we have to do something, right? And this needs to happen. Transparency is the only way we can drive change. So at the time, my whole head was how can we drive transparency? everybody's out there ranting. Can we stop ranting and actually put something into action, something that is actionable, right? Um, How do we do this, right? So, I mean, I I thought this up on Monday, launched it on Wednesday. (laughs) There was really no time to define an organization, you know, (laughs) even register. I didn't have a website. I didn't even register the company at the time. I, I think it was later on, people started going, Sharon, have you registered the company? Have you registered the trademark? Have you, all these things that you should be doing? I had done none of those because I was just like, Somebody has to do something. I just spent the whole of Tuesday on the phone calling everybody going like, you got to like help me on this one. You know, Jackie called Patrick call everybody, every influence that I had. I was like, we have to pull it behind this because we need something has to change. Like we are dying and brands are not seeing the connection between lack of jobs and marginalization. I don't know why the is not hitting them in the head. You know, there's a lot of black blood that gets spilled that is on these brand's hands. When you marginalize people and you push them into poverty, what do you expect them to do? You're not giving them jobs. You're appropriating their culture. You take their culture, you repackage it, and you sell it back to them at a premium. Meanwhile, you're not employing them right? You take the celebrities, you take the heroes and you put them in front of things so that it looks like it's these people, right? Meanwhile, you're giving those people a fraction of it and enriching yourself again. And now from these poor people who have no money and are not used to seeing ourselves in the light, whenever we see our famous people, we're like, I want to support that person. So we run out in mass and give money that we don't have. Like black consumer spending in America is over a trillion dollars. How much is black employment in America worth? You know, think about it. Our businesses don't get funded. And somehow brands just completely missed that point. And so at that point, I wasn't really thinking about what's going to happen. All I needed was change, right? And, and it was until brands started to really pull up, I was like, okay, we've got something here. We're onto something. Let's go harder. Let's really go for this. Let's, let's step it up into gear two, because now we need to start holding them for accountability, right? Because it wasn't just about releasing your numbers. You have, you're releasing an action plan. And to be honest, in doing that, The most powerful thing about this movement, let me tell you, something people don't think about. It wasn't really about just, I mean, when brands pulled up, it was amazing. But what that did, it showed black people they had a voice, right? So even black people within organizations started speaking up. Black people who had left companies that were treated bad started speaking up. It empowered people that you could speak up. And that's been the most powerful thing about this movement. It showed people that it's okay to speak up against the giants. And that's why we saw the storm come up because you had ex-employees now saying, yo, this happened to me and la, 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 la. And you know, the companies are in PR damage control and I was getting phone calls, Sharon, you have to shut this down. This is getting written. No, I'm not shutting nothing down. This is healthy. Because that person has been hurting for years and nobody's heard them out. So please, can you please hand the mic over to that person to keep talking? Because this will only make us better. All the morale within our teams is so low. Good. It should be right now. Can you talk (laughs) about your own
0: experience, Sharon? Because obviously, you know, when you started your brand last year and you and I spoke last time and said, you know, you had already made your wealth as a businesswoman and you were a former executive at LVMH. And then this was kind of the opportunity to bring that idea, the idea of inclusivity and diversity to the market yourself, personally. Yes, yes. But how was your experience as a corporate employee, when you're hearing these stories from Estee Lauder or L'Oreal or LVMH, you know, how much of that is just, you know, echoing the same things that you felt or the way that you've always thought corporate
1: America was? Absolutely. I I co-sign almost every of those single stories, co-sign them 100%, 100%. People don't understand what we go through in corporations, you know, because a lot of people make stupid comments like, oh, but how come you made it through corporate? Yeah. And what's the other people's excuse? It's their fault because we want to hire for qualification. And I'm like, shut up. You know, black people get hired when we're overwhelmingly the best. Yep. You know what I mean? Like you're overwhelmingly the best. So you're already walking and there's so much pressure on you. If you make a mistake, it is unforgivable. You know, you there is so much pressure on you. But even within these companies, they're not equipped. Society doesn't even understand race. Let alone That's why I, know, and I like go like, why do companies think immediately employees walk into their office and take a five minute training video, all of a sudden, boom, they're going to change their behavior. If the same person who sees me on the street and calls the police because I'm in their gym or, you know, I'm walking my dog and calling me the dog walker. What do you think they're going to do at work? They got all that prejudice. is going to miraculously disappear because they walked into the SELOTA building and there's a training video that says don't discriminate. Even the companies themselves don't even understand what microaggressions are. Um, And I can give people a lot of examples. For instance, my corporate life, I had to eat lunch after everybody. I had to eat lunch after everybody. Because when you're eating your lunch, when you're eating your food, everyone's like, oh, it stinks. Oh, ew, you eat that? Oh, yuck. Oh my God, you're eating chicken feet. Yes, damn right. I'm eating chicken freaking feet. Get over it. There's a lot of your food that is not appealing to me. I don't like salads. You know, for me, it feels like I'm grazing, right? But I don't walk <laughs> past salad bowls. It's true. That's my culture. We don't eat raw food. <laughs> like we don't just chew grass, you know. We take herbs and we cook them, right? And so I don't walk past those bowls of salads and go like, oh yeah, cook at that. Are you grazing? What are you, a cow, right? I don't say that to anybody, but you know, imagine how inappropriate it would be if I said that to somebody, to go like, yeah, we don't grace. You don't do things like that, but people do that to you and it's okay. Oh. They just literally walk past you and go like, ooh, what's that? So me and the Indian kids... Me and all the ethnic kids, exactly, we we had our own lunchtime. So when every all the white people were done with their okay, non-stinky lunch, then we would go there and go stink up the kitchen with curry. And even when people want to walk in, they would just step up and walk out the door, right? You're giving so me so
0: such elementary school flashbacks right now. You're giving me a flashbacks. I hear what you're saying. But what do you think that the managers and the middle management up to executive level can do about this because they're so unaware right now. And even with people like you in these positions at LVMH, at Benefit, in high positions, you weren't, you didn't want to stay there. You wanted to start
1: something different. And that seems to suggest- That's because nobody listens to you. Nobody listens to you because it's not a shared experience. And it's not an okay conversation to have because it's uncomfortable. Imagine sitting in a room with all white people going like, your environment is not conducive to me, the only black person in your whole entire company. I mean what incentive do they have to change it you know it Dave becomes zero. like it's just yeah it because it becomes like it's your problem it's a sharon thing sharon's just another angry black woman you know i was in companies and like i said these people were lovely people but didn't understand the things they were doing and how it made you feel you know oh let's go for a team building activity they'll go for a blow dry <laughs> right a blow dry right so i would sit there so this is good team building so i'm sitting there watching all of them blow dry their hair like Um, They used to bring tanning boots to the office on a Friday, right? So people can get tan, right? So I would just get up and leave, right? But you couldn't say anything. It's even like the common hobbies or common conversations, you know, everybody comes in, oh my God, the bachelor, oh my God. And that's the conversation everywhere, right? I'm black, I mean, how I many black bachelors have they been? Like, it's not now one, exactly. <laughs> right. Now they've had to tokenistically rush one in because they only had one in the 18 years of that show, one black person before had ever led. So most places are not inclusive to us, so we don't connect with those things. And that becomes, there's a whole office bachelorette tipping and bachelor tipping where everybody tips into it. So all the experiences are Anglo-Saxon. And this is just, I'm talking about, these are just even things people are not even conscious of. We're not even talking about direct aggression, right? Let's even just talk about things that people do and think is normal, but can create that culture. And that's why I go, right now in corporate, talk about culture. Whose culture is it?
0: So do you think the fact that you are not American gives you more visibility about how racist and how much tokenism exists within beauty and corporate culture? Because you're seeing it from an international lens.
1: Um, I think you, for me, obviously, I've experienced it in Australia. i experienced it everywhere right. in the world, right? So it's, it's not a, racism is not an American issue, and I really need people to understand that. Racism is not an America issue. It is intense in America because of the history of slavery, uh, segregation, and all of that, right? So you have that intensity of it, and also the volume of Black people here um, also creates that intensity, but racism happens everywhere. But I think one of the reasons why I can speak up is that I'm, I'm neutral, right? I walked into this country. I've only officially moved to America since January, since january so it allows me i have no allies i have no people that i have to you know keep them feeling good about themselves or whatever i have none of that i can just come and say things for what they are i can just come out and just say the truth without you know oh i'm gonna hurt my friends feelings because you know what i mean i, I can just you just got here but also it is true that it does help to have fresh eyes um and for me the other thing that propels me is i see the same pattern every single place i'm from nigeria right look at what the, the white people did in my country. They created my entire country. My country did not exist. It was manufactured and by cutting out borders from different countries because the person felt like that way. So we have a country where there's over 154 languages. People have nothing in common. What I mean, nothing in common, nothing. So we spent 60 years fighting each other because- Nothing. The language is not common. The culture is not common. Nothing is common other than a white man just going, boom, you exist now. This is what you're going to be. And you're going to be called Nigeria because you're around the Ninja area. That was the only logic for that. Oh, and you've got oil here. So we really want that oil. So give me some of that. So it's, it's you see the effect of colonialism. You see the fact that we don't know our history, even in Nigeria. We don't know our history because our history was completely rewritten and it was lost. So when you come from that culture, and I knew that back home, nobody educates you on that. We don't learn slavery back home. It's not in the curriculum. Everything is whitewashed from your books, right? So I saw myself go through that journey coming from Nigeria. And when you come from there, you see the white man is God. The white man is king. The white man is hero. The white man came and saved us. We were savages. We were eating each other until they came in and then boom, let there be light. And there was light. And they brought the Bible and they brought God and they brought church and put in our hands and they our people off to america right and, and everywhere else in the world so you don't know that we don't even know anything that west africa was the, a lot of slaves are taking from there we didn't know that growing up nobody teaches you up to today go to nigeria on the street and i see the impression they have about the brits it's very high it's very good people will even use words like nigeria went downhill immediately the brits left that's the education we get right so coming out of that education moving to australia Starting to see that, starting to see myself get lost in assimilation, right? Because I was told you can't carry braids. It's career limiting in corporate. You know, the, all the aggressions to me. Like I was sitting in a meeting once with a CEO. We were presenting. First time I met this person and he was staring at me to the point I thought my, maybe my boobs was open or something, but I couldn't look down because I didn't want to embarrass everybody. You know, that awkward thing girls have. Um, because he was just staring at me. He was and shocked so to see you. After I finished presenting, he literally looked at me and his question was just, do you tan under the sun? That that was literally his question. Not everything I just presented to him. Purely, do you tan under the sun? What um, was it in reference to? Nothing, just literally. I was presenting numbers. We're trying to sell you something. He was a retailer, the CEO of a retailer. I was just telling you how great what we can do and what we how our business plan is going to be like that. And literally the first time I've met you in a room full of all white people, you're sitting there staring at me and then you just like, do you burn under the sun? So I'm like, so the entire time I've been presenting to you, that's why you've been staring at it because clearly I was this it creature you'd never seen. Does it exist? Does it breathe? It talks, wow, it's speaking English. Does it burn under the sun? You know, you can see what was going through his head and why he was staring at me so intensely. So so these are the issues. This is what I talk about. Like corporate is not very friendly to black people. You know, um, even in getting promoted, how are you going to get promoted? You know, when nobody has a shared culture with you, when nobody has an emotional connection with you and when they are not enough black people in leadership roles to mentor you and sponsor you. Because remember... In big corporate, you have to get a sponsor if you're going to move up. Once you get past a certain point, skill experience gets thrown out because everybody has skill. Everybody has experience. You know, it's almost like in music, you get to this level, everybody's talented. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? every damn person who got that far is talented and now it's you know survival of the fittest right and that's where you disappear that's why you see we disappear in executive teams we disappear in boards because at that point is who's fighting for you whose side you're on so i think yes for me being from a different uh, um culture and and country seeing my own experiences being from africa (laughs) going into australia seeing the Experience of a black person in Australia, and then coming to going to UK, seeing the experience of a black person in the UK, coming to America, seeing it. There was consistencies everywhere, and I was like, "Look, at the end of the day, to the world, blacks black. You're just another negro, (laughs) regardless of where you know." So, and 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 so for me, when I came in here, it was easy one to see for what it is to have enough frustration. I'm 33 years old now. I've had discrimination from pretty much as long as I can even remember. So it's just balled up. It balls up to the point, like I said, now I can be more vocal about it because I have little to lose. All I can lose is my business. And like I said, I didn't start my business to be a billionaire. I didn't start that. That was part of my activism. It was part of me using a platform to speak up against what was going on. So I don't have the fear of, some, and Nike's not going to give me a contract. I never had a contract with Nike. You know what I mean? Or, or um, Ulta going to remove me from their shelves. Let them remove me from their shelves. I don't care. I'm not here to be rich. I'm here to, to say the truth. So I think for me, that's why it's a bit easy for me. It's the combination of not being from here, having fresh eyes and also not, not really caring. I, I wouldn't say I don't have much to lose because I do, but not caring about losing anything. Because from day one, when I left corporate, I always said, I have to be ready to sleep in my car. I have to, and I still, I'm ready to in my car. So tell me about the reason,
0: you know, obviously it was a, it was a part of your activism, but in a way, you know, beauty, the beauty industry has been able to approach soft issues like color matching or foundation in the last couple of years, but they're not able to talk about these systemic issues in business. So you obviously launched a product business, one that's very diverse, very inclusive. So when you say it was activism, explain that a little bit more
1: yeah so when i launch my range if anybody looks through my collection there's stories i tell stories i don't just throw products out there every single product has a purpose and a story and a meaning behind it and i focus a lot on those you know other than just oh here's a damn lipstick It's great whatever right you can get lipstick from anywhere they're great lipsticks but through my lipstick my badass icon range I curate stories of this bomb-ass black women who stood for something. You know, they are always well-behaved girls, so make history. They made history because they weren't well-behaved. They stood up for something, you know. On my grid, it's one of the few grids you see very controversial things that I post. Like I posted Eartha Kitt and a picture of her with her um, toes dipped into the water and asked my followers what was wrong in this photo. And a lot of them didn't know. And we educated them back in the time. You could not do that. That pool was drained when she was done because of her toes dipped in it. So just that toe dipped in that pool was defiance because at, back in the day, you know, there was segregation. Black people couldn't be in the same pool with white people, right? So we tackle issues like that. We're not just about, oh, look at our foundation shades. You know, we tell a story about, you know, um, Maya Angela when she was still, you know, Miss Calypso. People don't even know Maya Angela's past as Miss Calypso when she sang and she was singing Calypso music and using it to talk about police brutality. We had that on our grid a year ago talking about police brutality. So it was really a platform to you know, bring people together through our love for beauty, but also bring people who wanted to address social issues, um, especially when it comes to racism, colorism, marginalization. So we stand for everybody who's marginalized, right? The LGBTQ, IQ plus community, we talk about a lot of issues. We talk about, you know, riots. We talk about, we talk about, you know, we posted a video once of Nina Simone saying Black people are the most beautiful people. And it was so controversial. My comment section, some people were like, oh, imagine if a white person posted this. And I wrote back at the person and said, look, if it's bad to celebrate somebody that at the time, everybody up to today, we're still being told that we're monkeys, we're pigs, we don't look good. So if that person who's bold enough to actually say, I am beautiful, upsets you, then you really need to check your privilege, period. Um, it's okay for black people to say black is beautiful and not mean others are not beautiful. I don't know why people don't understand that. It's almost like black people can never say anything black without people saying all, right? If a black man says black women are beautiful, straight away you say white women write all women are beautiful. Who, who the fuck, like who asked you that fucking question? Like shut the hell up. Until black women are beautiful, all women cannot be beautiful. And guess what? The world has told us we're ugly. So no, you're wrong. All women are not beautiful because the world said black women are not beautiful and that's why we're saying we're beautiful so we can join the all this beautiful campaign and you just cannot get that across to people because the privilege is so much in the air and it's just it's not it's not fitting in and so we were the one we've been the ones who've been bold enough to do things like that and you know I've had feedback even this year when we had COVID right and I had to huddle with my team on what can we do better I mean, one of the first conversations that came up was that we need to be less, you know, bad because it alienates people. And
0: your own employees were, said this to you. Your own employees yeah. were worried about alienating customers and retailers. Yes,
1: exactly. And what do you so say? The same thing I always say. Let it alienate people. Let it alienate people. I have to stick to why I found this. I am an inclusive brand. If just because, because it was like, oh, in self I get this feedback all the time because white women see my counter and run. What I mean, they run like they saw a ghost to the point my staff don't even try stopping white men anymore because literally they run. Why? Because we have a big image of a black girl as a key visual. And then the image of the in the, of the of the big group that we have, we had four black girls of different colors and two white girls. And so apparently there was not there's not enough white girls in there to make them feel comfortable. So they see it. And what I mean, they bolt. I mean, they bolt like it's. Honestly, you'd think the person's seen a ghost. I've seen it myself and every So that was the feedback coming through that, hey, you know, especially now the business is going to be tough. We really can't continue to do this. We have to like change those visuals, put more white faces in there on our grid. There's way too many black faces. We have to put more white faces and whatever. And I was like, no, I came here to give a platform to the marginalized, right? If you want to see a lot of white faces, go to every other grid, just go there. You'll, you'll be inundated with it, right? If you want to see diversity, come here.
0: How do you explain that to other brands and other companies who are so reliant on retail? You know, they make it seem, and rightfully so, the retailers have all the power. You know, Target, Ulta, Sephora, Selfridges. You know, they tell you what to produce. They tell you what's selling. And you've been able to buck those trends. So why do you think that
1: is? Um, Because I'm (laughs) I'm like a bull in a China shop. (laughs) <laughs> right, everybody, everybody. I'm very clear on my purpose from day one. Um, they not, they not there where white women are used to seeing black women. On a big billboard and a big poster as the face of a brand and um, without thinking it's an ethnic brand and it's not for me. But we can't keep pandering to it because the more we, we succumb to that, the more we encourage that behavior. Black women have been buying for brands for decades without seeing any black woman on it. We don't assume just because there's no black woman, we can't use it. Right. So, so white women really need to get over it themselves. And for me, I was just like, I'm, I'm just going to keep doing that. Anybody who knows us knows we're inclusive. We make for all. Our foundations go from the lightest lights. And our light shades, our really uh our really light shades do extremely well because many brands don't cater for people who are really fair skin, right? So we cater for people from all the way on that end. We customize the formulas to understand all skin, not just our skin, right? So we go from the lightest light to the deepest deep. All our formulas are tested on every single skin tone. And if it does not work on every skin tone, it doesn't make the cut. So I've done the work to make my brand the most inclusive brand, but I will stay true to my heritage because it's almost like when you have black heritage, you have to be ashamed of it. Meanwhile, Maybelline can say Maybelline, New York. Balmain can say Balma Paris. Burberry can say Burberry, London, right? Uh, Rimmel, get the London look, right? But when you say, hey, I'm black, was like, ah, you're ethnic. You know what I mean? So I'm like, Everybody has to get used to it. Dolce & Gabbana is a proud Italian brand. They launch campaigns in Italian. They love their campaigns. They don't even speak English. And the whole world is like, yay, I want some of that. And then you come and go like, oh, I'm a black brand. Oh, you're a black brand for black people. Okay. You know what I mean? So I think for me, I was just like, I'm not going to bend to the pressure to conform. Um, It will be costly to me, but that's a cost I'm willing to bear to, to start a new world. Will you talk about Sharon? You know, part of you launching
0: this brand, you were able to launch, if I remember correctly, $750,000 of your own money. And you were able to secure about $5.5 5 million in funding. But you had already had the product ready to ship. Ulta and Selfridges were locked and loaded. So the you know risk- right, I had
1: a PO. I had right. a PO. Exactly. So, the, so- <laughs> yeah.
0: the risk for investors, it was a proven concept almost. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like, trying to raise fundraising, if you should be used as an example, and why other Black men and women may or not be getting those dollars or that
1: capital? Exactly. Exactly. Because I cannot be used as an example. I cannot be used as a standard because my experience is completely different. And that's why I go, we can't always just use, oh, it has to be the best case scenario because white people who are mediocre get money, right? So you can't wait for, with Black people, you have to be perfection. You have to be perfection. This is what I talk about. My brand, I had done all the products. It was ready. Literally, I had finished products. I had, you know, the brand identity was finished. The campaign was done. Done. We just were waiting to shoot it. We just needed the money to shoot it. But I could show the entire storyboard to the investors on this is our launch campaign. The PR strategy, everything was done. They received everything, right? So I had multi-million dollar purchase orders in my hand. In my hand, I had an order from a retailer worth multiple million dollars. So there were things that were a short deal. You know what I mean? They were do things of a show deal. So it reduces the risk. It reduces the risk because essentially Alta becomes your first investor because they're the first people who gave you that massive PO, you know, so they have sort of co-signed it to go. We like this concept. So that's a lot less risky for investors. Obviously, every business still carries risk because we could have launched and been a complete flop. Right. But it's not the same as me going to an investor and going, hey, I have an idea, of blah, 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 blah. I don't want to do this. And I hope also are going to take it. They're going to be like, yeah, when also takes it, come back and call me. Right. Um, So, so I think from my, my experience was quite different. And even with my experience, I struggled at the start because there's not enough education about inve- the investor world, to be honest. And this is another problem about the investor world is this world that lives in the shadows, it lives in the shadows. You either know it or you don't know it. it is like, how do you find an investor? It's all three introductions. How do you get that first introduction when you're just a person who lives in nowhere um, with a great idea? How do, even know, how do you even know what funds to go to? How do you know what an early stage fund is? What an angel investor is? What a family office is? What a VC is? What a private equity firm is? There is so much confusion around the whole investment ecosystem. And that's a huge problem. It's a big problem. People don't know. I didn't know. And I've I've, I've been in this industry a long time. So what did I do? My first mistakes, I first went to the big funds. The massive funds, because those are the ones that you hear about, especially me being in corporate. Now they wasted my time for six months. What I didn't realize is they don't invest in pre-money businesses. Like pre-money means you have not made a dollar yet, right? Wasted all my time on them. And I actually found success immediately. I got connected into like the angel kind of early stage investment, because according to somebody, they were like, you were fishing in the wrong pond. You know, immediately I came to the wrong, the right pond, I raised money within three weeks, uh, which is crazy, right? So, but why I go like, don't use me as an example, because a normal black woman who's out there, who has an idea, firstly, how is she gonna find these funds without the connections to introduce you? I've been in this circle. I had people who were able to go, let me link you up with this person, right? Who gives you the introductions? If you just went on the website and just applied and said to them, hi, I have a great idea, call me back. You ain't get no call back. I'm just telling everybody that. (laughs) You You are not getting a call back. It does not work like that. They all spend their time chasing things that are vetted which is why the same businesses get money over and over and over and over again, because the entire investment ecosystem know what they know in terms of the brands um, and that you're on their radar, which means they keep looking at you and it's easier for you to raise money. So it's a real big challenge for, for women of color. And that's why the numbers we see out there is just completely abysmal.
0: Why do you think that the founders who have gotten a lot of attention prior to this moment were very much the same kind of archetype if they were women, you know, obviously white, Obviously, of a certain pedigree, you know, these lifestyle brands that appeal to everybody, but maybe appeal to no one. But you could argue that that was in beauty, in fashion, in outdoor apparel. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, it's the Once again, it's the thing, right? A white girl walks into a VC office and says, hey, I want to make some yoga pants. Right. It's cute. You relate to it right? If there's something that connects you. And to be honest, even let's talk about, even women in general don't get funding, right? Because a lot of these rooms you're walking into is just white middle-aged men. So when you tell them about yoga pants, if you're lucky, there's a white woman in the room and they should be like, yay, great yoga pants. You guys connect. You guys probably do zero gravity yoga um, and all the kind of fun stuff that, that, that people do, right? Okay. So you connect with that. As a black woman, you walk in there, I want to do, I mean, look at the way they treated Melissa Butler on um, Shark Tank, the founder of Libba. They literally called her, I think it was a cockroach. They called her. Um, it's disgusting the way black women get treated. Let me give another example. And I'm not, this is, is no personal vendetta. It's no naming and shame you or anything. Flesh Beauty by Linda Wells, right? Revlon, you want to create, or you, whoever concepted that, you want to create an inclusive brand and then you take a white woman, right? How can a white woman create, talk about issues about race? You've lived, the, not only are you white, you're a privileged white woman. You've lived the best life on the planet, and now you want to talk about inclusivity? That's the kind of brand you find a black woman to come and help you work on, right? Because otherwise, it's not authenticity, it's just shallow. But what happens with that? Okay, a white woman comes out and says, hey, I'm going to launch a brand about inclusivity. Nobody challenges and go, what do you know that you can talk about in here? what makes you the authority in inclusivity because consumers are not stupid, right? They have to buy authenticity. Okay, so I wanna launch this, what happens? You get money thrown at you, you know, she was in launching 510 altar stores, six foot gondolas in each store, in Manhattan, everywhere, right? Imagine that, what black woman has ever got that? What black woman has ever got that? Let's talk about it, the biases, they exist. What black woman has ever got that? so if you can say two things you can say on one hand oh, it was a revlon deal or whatever but if that was a revlon deal right why would revlon go to a white woman to create them an inclusive brand <laughs> there are many black women out there that you could have gone to to help you with a, with a brand like that okay you could have gone okay this was linda wells idea that revlon was co-signing and obviously Alta and everybody co-signed at some point in that equation you wonder and this is what i said immediately i saw that launch i was like this is interesting to be honest, as a black woman, it was, it was a bit offensive to me because I was like, once again, white privilege talking about our pain. It, it, it was just, it just, it, and black women reacted that way. A lot of, I mean, I remember the first post that they did to announce the brand. They had about 75,000 comments of people just mad about this stuff. Just going, this is, because I mean, even the launch campaign was, this is what Band-Aid used to look like. This is what Crayon used to look like. It's like, that, that's the stuff you're going to talk about? When you're talking about lack of inclusivity, this is as far as you can think Band-Aid and crayon and crayon color. And that's what happened when you have a room of white people trying to talk about stuff they don't know about because that's the angle they go to as opposed to, hey, come and talk to me. Let me tell you the real stuff we're dealing with that you can put in a campaign. My campaign opened with Malcolm X saying, who taught you to hate yourself? My campaign celebrated Black culture in its entirety. I shot it in Lagos. I shot it at the shrine of the great Felakuti, right? So there's so many things that other people don't know, but when the Black community see that, they're like, this is legit. This is not bullshit. This is not some made-up thing in a lab because you know culture, you understand culture. So there's a lot of work companies need to do, but and, and also prioritize moving Black people into leadership. Because if more black people were in leadership, you would not have these problems in the first place, right? So companies need to move black people. And that should be an active work because this is people already in your organization. You can move up, right? They need to make a conscious effort within the next six months to develop black talent and move them into leadership roles because they're the ones who are going to start fixing all these problems for you in the long term. You know, the more black voices there are in the company, the more you're not going to need to have this conversation because they will tell you. We cannot have a culture that does that because it makes me feel this way and everybody like me feel this way. So they have to prioritize on getting more black leaders, more black people into the executive teams that are not chief diversity officers, by the way.
0: Talk about the chief diversity
1: (laughs) officers and these diversity
0: boards that are popping up at Lauder, Shoshado, et cetera, et cetera. You know, many times these are roles that are either are new roles for the company and they're hired by and they are filled by black employees who may not worked in beauty or may not have been part of the organization before or they're part of the organization and they have another job so do you think that these boards and these people are really able to implement change like who are they reporting to how much power do they have
1: exactly that i think that's a critical question how much power do they have so i think any company who's implementing this board you have to make sure that they have power the second thing is you have to bring a chair that's not from your company period it's very important you bring in fresh eyes. Very, very important. It is, and I see this happening a lot. If they're just taking someone from the organization, you're black, go and share this organization. That person has been within your ecosystem. The person is afraid of you, right? You have to bring somebody who has nothing to lose. And in that regard, I would actually say you should share it with an advisor, not an employee. Because an advisor has no reason to mice words with you. An advisor will tell you this is crap, right? An employee will never tell you this is crap because they're an employee. They have an incentive to keep their job. You know what I mean? So I think um, these committees should be chaired by credible advisors. And you can have employees in there, right? Because you you must have employees in there because the advisors need to understand your culture, right? But you need that fresh eyes. And you need people who don't feel like their life depends on you, like they're reporting to you. You know what I mean? You need them to have the autonomy to be able to tell you what needs to be done and hold you accountable to do what needs to be done as well, you know, uh, without being afraid of you. Like I said, we do not care that... I'm sitting there talking to the board. I'm just telling you what needs to be done and it needs to be done without any, oh, but this is, you know, in corporations, there's worship for the executive teams, right? Oh, this is so, 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 so person. Oh, that's Jean-Paul D'Angon come in. Oh, everybody clear the elevator. You need to bring somebody who does not care, <laughs> who does not care. Or doesn't even understand that you clear the elevator when the CEO is coming in. You know what I'm saying? So is McKinsey
0: going to come on board at one of these companies? No, do you bullshit. expect that?
1: <laughs> no, not bullshit. No, no I know, but that's I'm just not waiting what, for that. Exactly. That's why I go like, real people, this is not thing that now should be your consultant heaven. That's what companies do. They'll just throw $2 million at Bain, throw $2 million at McKinsey, um, throw $5 million out there because these are the kind of numbers these consultants charge you to do any uh, business improvement. Forget that, bring real people to solve it. And if you're pulling your teams into this team, please either pay them more or reduce their workload because it's not fair that they're fixing your problems for your corporate gain um, whilst having to do their jobs and do this at the same time. You know, it's too much work for them. So diversity boards are good but you need to make them somewhat independent because unless they're independent, they do not have power to really implement change because they answer to you. So they're going to give you the answers that you want to hear. And that's something that every big company should be thinking of right now.
0: So Sharon, when you think about the accountability of this going forward, so everybody's pulling up or a fraction of people are pulling up yes. and the numbers are out there. So what, state, what kind of stages need to be set forth for these companies to actually produce change because i mean if you think about the yes. beauty industry and you think about sustainability goals for every for instance those are all in 2025 or 2030 nothing no one knows what's happening from yeah, week none. to week, month to month
1: yeah we're getting them to pull up again in six months so one of the things that we've been uh trying to like solidify we know that this is not going to be a moment we want to do it every single year twice a year because it has happened twice not once and so we want to like create national pull-up days um where it's a we have Lip, National Lipstick Day, National Brow Days. So we may as well do something that's useful. And one of those <laughs> days should be in Black History Month because obviously that's a time a lot of conversation is around the Black history. And I think there should be a second time that's probably around July, obviously giving it a, a really good six months to run. But yes, we will have two national pull-up days where where every company just knows without us coming to tell you pull up. You just know, I on that day we're all gonna stand in solidarity with the Black community and update the Black community on on what we've done. So we're working on that and just trying to work out what the date's gonna be um, to make sure it doesn't clash with anything because there's all eh, there national dog day, pet day, take your friend to work day, sister really day, important Friendship day. stuff, right? You know right. what I mean? So I'm like, let's carve out national days for the black community and co-sign that and have, uh, once we create those days, we're gonna circulate the petition to all companies to sign and agree that they agree that on this day they will stand in solidarity with the black community they will release their numbers and not only that they will share the progress that they've made or lack of progress um, and update on the work. because yes in six months some people wouldn't have made much progress that's reality um, especially right now in COVID-19 era you know there is a lot of there's a lot going on We're in a recession right now in America there's a lot that's going on and we understand that but we want to see that you actively work into it and that's why this is not a one-off conversation one of social driving and then we walk away. Now, we, got, we, we, we ain't going nowhere. Um, so we want to establish two national days where all companies um, pull up for the Black community and let us see. So, yeah.
0: What would you say about the pipeline problem that a lot of these companies say is a problem, that they cannot mm-hmm. find these workers or mm. these executives that are who are Black or who are people of color, like they, they just don't exist. What would you say to ah, that?
1: It, it, the executive one is ridiculous because so all the people in your business are not competent. What a lot of lot of garbage is that. Executive, you're not even looking from elsewhere. If you cannot develop people within your organization, then shame on you. That's a you problem. Nobody's born an executive. Everybody's developed into an executive. And it's our job to find the potential and talent in people and develop them into those roles. So if you're saying in your organization, you're not finding black people who are good enough, then shame on you. It's an absolute shame on you. So I cannot help you with that because that is your problem. That is your bias problem. And maybe you should invest more in your black employees to develop them so that they're capable of taking executive roles. The pipeline question is ridiculous too. How many of these companies have relationship with HBCUs? Think about it. In America, there are freaking colleges and universities that are black. So it, it's like, it's stupid. Like, how can you say I've wanted diversity, but never thought that maybe the colleges that house diverse people, like literally those colleges of majority black, you don't think to go recruit talent in from there and start grooming them before they've even graduated, but every day you're going to Harvard and whatever. So you want to go to Harvard and go like, hey, can you give me a black student? You can't do that, right? But there are colleges and universities that black students go to because they feel comfortable there. A lot of kids who can even go to Harvard choose not to go to Harvard because they're like, I don't want to be the odd one out. You know, I would rather go to a HBCU where I can feel okay and I can feel like a human being. So firstly, talk about pipeline issue. How many of them are investing in that, right? They're also quick to give money to NAACP and Black Lives Matter for PR. How many of them are funding scholarships and educational programs to also fund people going into university? How many of them they have a lot of cash? It is not just in the interest of black people. it is the interest of society to bring diverse voices to the table because it makes everybody stronger, and diversity is good for business. Period.
0: Last question, Sharon. Are you optimistic?:
1: Yes. I have to be. I'm a dreamer. You know, I'm a dreamer. I'm not one. I'm not an people. Sometimes when you are an activist, right, people think you're angry. I'm not angry. I'm hopeful. That's why we spend the time. If I thought all the energy I was putting in was going nowhere, I would just sleep at home and do nothing and say nothing. So you don't say something to be a troublemaker. You say something because you believe that you sow a seed that might grow into a tree. So we are dreamers. I'm a dreamer. And um, and I have to be optimistic. That's the only way I can survive or cope. You know, I have to be optimistic that if people know better, they will do better. And that was what this exercise was, to make people know better so that they can do better. So I am optimistic. I am absolutely optimistic that we will see really strong results that come out of this.
0: Thank you so much, Sharon. This was incredible. It was so wonderful having you here.
1: Thanks, Priya. Thanks for having
0: me. Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. See you next week.